Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Any fellow news addicts in the room? You know who you are, all three of you, which is more like 30, I'm guessing, in real life. I grew up in a family of origin where reading the news on a daily basis was kind of a moral responsibility. And prior to the pandemic, I would limit my news intake to a set amount and I would pay close attention to kind of the source to make sure it's not clickbaity and not just, you know, driving off of my fear and evolutionary survival instinct or whatever it is. But when COVID hit, all of that went out the window. Over the last year, my like news addiction has become a a problem, like a full-on obsessive compulsive kind of coping mechanism to mitigate my body's anxiety. You have one, reading the news is one of my many ones. More on that in just a minute. But while reading the news a few days ago, an article in The Economist caught my eye because the title was The God-Shaped Hole. Of course, that's a play on the idea from the 17th century polymath and French intellectual Blaise Pascal that all human beings are born with an ache for God deep in the fabric of their soul. By ache for God, you may not even believe in God. What I mean by that is an ache for love with a capital L and intimacy to know and be known and acceptance as you are with all of the mess. And that's what the ancient Christians called union with God. And an ache for meaning and purpose to our life beyond survival and pleasure. An ache for an identity to live from and a community to belong to and a way of life to form you into a person of character and contribution. Call that the God-shaped whole, as Pascal did, or the religious impulse, as anthropologists often do, or call it whatever you want. It's in all of us at a DNA level. Now, prior to the pandemic, a number of leading social critics were calling into question the idea of a God-shaped hole in the late modern West. Most of our secular, lovely secular friends and family members and neighbors and coworkers, in particular those who are kind of middle class or upwardly mobile or doing just fine right now, aren't walking around town with existential angst like reading Nietzsche in despair and just peering over the edge into the abyss of Darwinian materialism, right? Most of us are just walking around town trying to find a restaurant with indoor dining. So far, unsuccessfully for the most part. A Gallup poll came out last week on the decline in church attendance due to the pandemic. Most estimates, this is interesting, say that about one-third of regular churchgoers left the church for good in 2020. For the first time in American history, or since we started keeping count, less than half the population is tied to a church, synagogue, or mosque. 47%, an astonishing 20-point drop in just 20 years. But the God-shaped whole has not gone away. It's just moved on to other things. Yoga, mindfulness, psychedelic mushrooms are all the rage. Thank you, Joe Rogan, for the popularization of that. The cult of wellness or essential oils or all things goop. Sex is very popular in our city. Careerism. But above all, at least over the last year, to politics. The Economist writes, Americans have rejected the institutions of religion, but not the religious urge, including a yearning for moral certainty and a communal identity that churches and synagogues have traditionally catered to. Notice they can't help but talk about it in consumeristic language. 
Politics looks increasingly like a pseudo-religion, righteous, moralistic, unforgiving, and fervently adhered to. America's national debate has taken on a religious complexion in both parties on the right and on the left. They call it America's new religious war. Andrew Sullivan, whatever you think of him, in a similar piece for Easter, opined, these pseudo-religions will fail. They are too worldly, too rooted in contemporary culture wars, too baldly tribal, and too shallow in their understanding of the world to have much staying power. But they can do immense damage to souls and our society in the meantime. They lack the one thing that endures in religious practice, something transcendent that makes the failure of our lives redemptive and sees politics merely as the necessary art of attending to the imperfect. Politics is one of many examples of the God-shaped hole in late modern Western society, the ache in all of us for something or someone to put our hope in. Reading the news right now is an exercise in despair, not hope, because all of the things that we put our hope in continue to fail and fail and fail. Sociologists tell us that for the first time in over a century, life expectancy has been dropping three years in a row in the U.S. This is a stat prior to COVID, which is bizarre. Modern medicine is without parallel. Most 80-year-olds are living longer and better and healthier than ever before. What gives? And economists and sociologists and leaders pay close attention to life expectancy. It's a key indicator of the overall health of a society. And they argue that the decline in life expectancy is due to what academics call deaths of despair, most notably suicide, the opioid crisis, and substance abuse. The steady stream of bad news and the utter incapability of pseudo-religions to quell the soul's ache for God conspire together to kill off the last vestige of hope. But I have some good news from you. It's not from The Economist, it's not from a journalist, it's not from online at all, it's from the New Testament. We opened our gathering, thank you, Gerald, with a reading from the Gospel of John about Mary running into Jesus on the first Easter morning in the garden, reminiscent, of course, of the opening page of the Bible. She was crying from despair. I mean, she put her hope in Jesus that he was more than just a rabbi, more than even the king of Israel and the world, that he was the Lord of all creation. But then he was dead and he was gone and she woke up that first Easter morning in full-on despair. But then is that lovely moment, Mary. And all of the sudden, she starts to realize, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. Have you had that moment of the last year? I've had that a few times where I ran into somebody around town, but with the mask, and it's been a year, and whatever, and I don't know who I'm talking to, and I just pretend, but it's really awkward. And then all of a sudden, do you have that moment like, oh, it's you! And then all of a sudden, it's like this jolt in your body of joy, where your happy spirit is happy to see another soul. It's that, but to the nth degree for Mary. It's that, who are you, the gardener? Where, oh, 
It's you, and you're alive and back from the dead. And in that moment, in that neurobiological jolt in her body, she turned from crying in despair to literally running off to tell the good news. Now, this good news has come to be called, in Christian language, the gospel. In Greek, it's the word euangelion, where we get a word like evangelism. But it wasn't a religious word in the first century like it is today. If anything, it was a political word. It was used for when a new king came to power in the empire or defeated Rome's enemies. It just meant good news. And it's easy to forget that the gospel is, first of all, good news. Not good advice about how to live well and how how to stay happy and healthy and all of that. Not a moral or religious or philosophical system as great and important as all of that is. The gospel is first and foremost news. It is about something that happened. Advice, you can take it or leave it. You can pay attention or you can ignore it. You can agree with it or disagree with it. But news... I mean, you can believe it or not, but that has no bearing on whether or not it actually happened. It's just a fact about something that happened. It's just what is. If there was ever a year when we need to hear good news, it's no surprise that one of the most popular and successful things of 2020 was John Krasinski's series, Some Good News, right? Internet sensation. Were you there for that moment in pop culture? We crave good news. All he did was sit around in like board shorts in his home with his iPhone and tell stories of good things that happened that week. And it brought joy to millions. But good news, as we all know, has been the exception to the rule. The rule is on the other end of the spectrum. But here's two things you need to get about news, good or bad, in order to make sense of the good news of Jesus. One, all news is part of a larger story. And we must have context of that larger story for it to have any effect on us at all. Otherwise, it's just data out there in the universe. Whatever the news is, Biden won the election, or the vaccine is now available, or you fill in the blank. All news is a part of a larger story by which we make sense of life, past, present, and future. Secondly, news says something has happened and therefore something will or will not happen in that larger story. Would not be an Easter sermon without a quote from the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. You're welcome. Quote, what good news regularly does then is to put a new event into an old story, point to a wonderful future, hitherto out of reach, and so introduce a new period in which, instead of living a hopeless life, people are now waiting with excitement for what they know is on the way. The Christian good news is supposed to be this kind of thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes as news within a larger story, and it points to a wonderful new future. This is the good news of Jesus, that something has happened in the past that as a result, the world is now different in the present and will be different even more so in the future. Now, what exactly is this good news of Jesus? Well, I know of no better place to look And then 1 Corinthians 15, which is by far the most explicit definition of the good news of Jesus in all of the New Testament. If your Bible is open, turn there right now. Let's work through verse 1 down to verse 28. If not, pick up your Bible off the shelf at home and read along with me. Verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters... 
I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. There's that word, euangelion, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. It's the foundation for all of your life. By this euangelion, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here it is, the explicit definition. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's a Christian idiom for death. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This is Paul's summary of the gospel. Like a design from Apple, it is minimalistic and stripped down to the raw essence. One, Christ died for our sins. Two, he was buried. Three, he was raised on the third day. And four, he appeared. We know this is true, Paul goes on to argue, because a lot of us saw him with our own eyes and all sorts of people were more than willing to die at the hand of Rome or the Jewish leaders as martyrs rather than recant the claim that Jesus was alive and well. And all of this was, note, quote, according to the scriptures, meaning all of this is a part of the much larger story the library of scripture tells, a story about how the universe is not the result of blind chance and chemical reactions and survival of the fittest, but the loving design of a beautiful mind, about how human beings are not mere animals with opposable thumbs, and consciousness is not just a brain-generated fluke, and free will is not an illusion, but we are image-bearers of God created in love, by love, for love but how we were created to live under the rule of God in his kingdom of love, in harmony with God, with each other, with the earth itself. But tragically, our ancestors in the story chose to rebel against the rule of God. They chose to define good and evil for themselves, to trust in the voice of the serpent rather than the voice of the king, and the result was not freedom and life, but imprisonment in the chains of self-worship and in the tyranny of death. Due to the serpent and our self-worship, the human project has been infected with a disease of sorts that the scripture writers call sin, the result of which is entropy and death in our soul and our society. Every attempt human beings have ever made for thousands upon thousands of years to put the human project back on track, to self-heal, to self-liberate, to usher in the kingdom without the king has always ended in failure 100% of the time. No matter how good and noble our intentions, no matter how brilliant our strategy, no matter how genius our technology, everything we touch we corrupt with the disease of sin and in the end we all die. But that is not the end of the story. It's also a story about how God has not abandoned us to our own devices. 
how God can't stop loving because he is love. In spite of our rebellion, he is there like a father just receiving the beating of a wayward child. He's come to us in Jesus to heal our soul by welcoming us back into loving relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to inaugurate his king over against, His kingdom over against the kingdom of the enemy inch by inch until his return. In Jesus, the creator God is saving the world. This is the story that we are a part of, that we were baptized into. But, skip down to verse 12. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Or more literally, there's no resurrection of the corpses or of dead bodies. There were people in Corinth who, based on the popular Greco-Roman view of life after death as kind of a disembodied existence in a shadowy Hades or up in heaven or whatever, simply did not believe in the resurrection. Even today, I'm a pastor. I, like, I get paid to believe in the resurrection. And when Gerald says that stuff like that, I think, that sounds incredulous to my late modern Western. I'm not a secular person, but... I live in the milieu of secularism, and it sounds incredulous to my modern ears. But, 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I love how honest and bold Paul is on the reality of the resurrection. For him, the resurrection is the linchpin of the gospel. If archaeologists were to discover the body of Jesus in a Palestinian grave and somehow DNA proof it or whatever, it was Jesus of Nazareth, our entire faith would crumble. Yeah, the moral system would stand, the philosophical, you need a way to discipline your desires, whether it's Buddhism or the way of Jesus or Aristotle, virtue ethics or whatever. There are pieces that for sure are great, but our faith, our experience of the living God in love with one another, all of that would fall apart. Paul is just straight up. One, if there's no resurrection, the gospel is a myth, verse 13. Two, preaching the gospel is, quote, useless, verse 14. Three, Paul and the apostles are, quote, false witnesses or liars, verse 15. Four, our faith in the gospel is futile. It is waste, verse 17. Five, we are still in our sins, meaning we are all alone. No one is coming to save us. It's on you. Find the right killer app or mindfulness technique, or pill, or wellness tip, or tech, and just face it, there is no cure for the disease. Make your peace with the black abyss. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Six, those who have fallen asleep are lost, verse 18, meaning our loved ones are gone forever, and when we die, which could be in decades or could be in minutes, it's fade to black. There is no hope beyond the horizon of this life of pain and suffering. And seven, quote, we are of all people most to be pitied, verse 19, because we could all be eating brunch right now if there is no resurrection. 
Some of you are at home and you're like, I am eating brunch right now. God sees you. That's all I have to say. But we don't, so no shame from us. If there is no resurrection, but, verse 20, take a look, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. Now, first fruits is an agrarian metaphor. Most of us in the room, I'm guessing, are not farmers, unless if some of you are from Savi Island or way out in the boondocks. Most of us are not. But it's an agrarian metaphor that's lost on us urbanites from spring. Right now, there are first fruits. We get this all over the city, like the cherry blossom trees. Anybody going to run downtown this week or whatever? If not, I was there a few days ago, just gorgeous. I went for a walk yesterday in Forest Park. There are buds all over the forest, and they are signs of what is coming for the rest of the forest summer and new growth and new life, and if you're a farmer, a harvest. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits, meaning it's the first bud on the tree, it's the first blade of grass out of the ground in spring. It's a sign of what is coming for all of humanity. There is a lot more to come. You see, Easter isn't just about Christ's resurrection, it is about ours. Keep in mind that a lot of American Christians think of the future as a two-step process, life followed by life after death with Jesus in a place he called the heavens or the God space, some kind of place where we are held in the love of God. But in the scriptures, the future for followers of Jesus is a three-step process, life followed by life after death, followed by resurrection, or what N.T. Wright calls life after life after death. Here, on earth, new, whole, and free forever with God. The idea is very simple. One day in the future, what happened to Jesus will happen to all of his followers. Life, death, burial, resurrection. Now listen to Paul's logic. Take a look at verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam, and in the original language, Adam is a Hebrew word, it just means man or human, all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now, this is central to Paul's theology, if you've ever read the New Testament, that we are in Christ. As he writes to the Colossians, your life is hidden with Christ in God. We read Jesus' word to Mary this morning, I have not yet ascended to my God and your God, my Father and your Father, meaning because of what happened on the cross, there is now a way for us to experience the same relationship with the God that Jesus called Father that Jesus had and still has by the Spirit. This is central to Paul. We are in Christ. Therefore, in layman's terms, everything that is true about Jesus is now true about you and me. Run that grid through Easter, Jesus came back from the dead, therefore, in time, we will come back from the dead too because we are in Christ, because your life is hidden with Christ in God. But there's a sequence of events. Take a look at verse 23. Each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, Then when he comes, that's where we get the language of the second coming, meaning in the future at his return, those who belong to him, his followers, you and me. Then, 24, the end will come. 
The word "en" there is telos in Greek. It's where we get the word teleology, if you remember philosophy class at all from high school or college. It doesn't mean like the end as in dystopia or you know, kind of a Star Wars blow up the earth kind of thing. It means the end goal, the telos, that all of human history has been gearing up toward for thousands of years. This isn't about the end of the world. It's about the end of a world, a world racked by disease like COVID-19 and death and evil and injustice and racism and despair. The telos will come when, verse 24, he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. There is no sanctimonious sentimentality from Jesus about death. None, he's in a better place, or God must have needed another fly fisherman in heaven, or whatever. None of that. I don't, mean, I don't mean that to mock somebody who's been through an experience of loss and tragedy. But for Jesus, death is not a friend. It is an enemy. He is not at peace with death. He is at war with it. And one day he will bury death in the grave forever. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Notice that for Paul, the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news for the future church, but for the future world. There is coming a day, and we are for sure not there yet, when there will be no more global pandemics. There will be no more face masks. There will be no more injustice against racial minorities or crimes of hate. There will be no more political polarization. There will be no more body that is racked by fear when all of creation will come back under the rule of Jesus in his kingdom. His kingdom is the place where, in Jesus' own language, God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, meaning where all of life, not only in our soul but in our society, is as it should be, as the loving creator God intended from the beginning. This is a world that is coming in full with Jesus' return in the future, but is here now in the present by the Spirit, and in the people of Jesus. What the four Gospels are about, what the miracles in the four Gospels are about. All sorts of scholars, such as N.T. Wright and many others, have done great work to say that we misread the Gospels when we read a miracle story from Jesus and think that it's, quote, proof that he was God. There's a little bit of truth in that, but all sorts of other people do miracles in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean we think that Peter was God, or Paul was God, or Elijah, or Elisha was God. The best way of reading the miracle stories are of signposts of the inbreaking kingdom of God from the future dragged into the present through Jesus and by the Spirit and the people of Jesus. Jesus' healing of the sick points forward to a time when there is no more disease or death. His driving out of demons to a time when all demonization, spiritual and non-spiritual, is eradicated. There's no more evil, there's no more injustice, there's no more pain, there's no more suffering. His feeding of the hungry to a time when there is food and drink for all and no one is poor or left out. His hospitality and welcome to the stranger to a time when there is no more sin, no more shame, no more tribalism, no more us versus them. We are all around the table as family with God the Father. 
his rebuke of those in power, in political power and in religious power. Jesus was just as frustrated with the church as most of our, us were, but he stayed in it. And his rebuke of those in power to a time when, quote, the government will be on his shoulders and there will be no more media and I will be out of a job. There will be no more mediators between God and man, just pure, unmediated access to the inner life of the Trinity itself. Every miracle story in the Gospels and every miracle story from our own church and from your own life is a signpost. What right now is the exception to the rule one day will become the norm. It's a signpost to the future world. This is the story that the good news of Jesus is a part of. The Hollywood screenwriter Babette Buster calls human beings narrative animals. Neurobiologists argue the human brain is wired for story. Put humans together, what do we do? We tell stories, both just to make us laugh and cry, but also to make meaning of the human condition. There are two stories in this text and on offer in our city today. One is that Christ died, and that's basically the end of the story. His body is decomposing somewhere in a Palestinian grave. So pick someone or something else to put your ache for God onto. Politics, left or right, or your job or career or your sexuality or just hedonism or whatever it is you want. You do you. But there's another story. That Christ died for our sins, for the deepest part of all of us that is bent and hurt and broke. And whatever pain or suffering we face in this life, it does not have the last word. The question is, which story will you live by? Which story will I live by? Which story will we as a community live by? Last spring, when the world felt like it was falling apart, because it kind of was, um, I think it was Jenny Griffin who sent a link to a, a little lecture interview online from that iconoclast Adam Robinson, if you're familiar with him, who is a modern-day polymath. He was like a chess champion, and now I don't even know what he does. He's just crazy and brilliant. And it was a brilliant lecture, and he basically was really interesting. He's not a Christian. He said that what we're living through right now is he called it a spiritual crisis. And he just did the history on since World War II in the West, we've turned basically to materialism and do a number of other isms as an attempt to kind of quell the soul's ache, and it just is empty. It's left an entire generation burned out, racked by anxiety, and it's left the human heart, quote, empty, lost, and crushed. His language, not mine. He made the points that, point that as a general rule, millennials and Gen Z are rejecting the story that was handed to them and the way the world is. But as a general rule, we don't have a better story or vision for the world to replace it at least not one that's grounded in reality of the human condition. And Jenny reached out to him online and sent him a link to one of our first online gatherings, and apparently he was with us for a service or something like that, and messaged her back and said, this is great, and here's one line, the world needs a better story. I've just been thinking about that line ever since. What a, the world needs a better story, that's true. Our city needs a better story than what is on, for sure than what is on offer from the right and from the left right now and from the many other pseudo-religions swirling all around us. We need a better story. And those of us who are in that better story, we need to come back year after year, month after month, day after day, moment after moment to the real, true story of the world, the reality to which all the other narratives are the parity. 
For those of you who are ready to step into the story of Jesus, the way you do that, the way followers of Jesus have done that for millennia is through this ancient symbolic rite that we call baptism. We're baptizing at all of our in-person gatherings today except this one, but this afternoon and tonight. Baptism baptism is a dramatic reenactment of the gospel. Death, you go under the water. Symbolic of how you in your whole body, meaning your whole self, are dying to your old story and your old way of life. Burial, you pause there and you wait for God or Gerald to rise you from the dead. (laughs) You will not have to wait three days with us, I promise. And then resurrection, you come back out, symbolic of coming into a new story and a new identity and a new family to belong to and a new future and destiny in God's world. Water itself is a visible symbol of the Spirit of God. To be baptized is to be immersed in the reality of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all around you. And discipleship to Jesus is a daily discipline to live your baptism, to live as the people of the future in the present, to let our hope of the future give shape to the contours of our life in the here and now. To end, um, a few earlier this week, as I, I walk in Forest Park a lot, I was there yesterday, I was there the day before, I was there earlier in the week, as I was kind of working out the Easter teaching in my mind, and I was sad over a few things in my life that day, and I was just struck in that moment by how fleeting life is. I've been to two funerals in the last month. One was for somebody in his 80s, and it was a rich and meaningful private kind of family service in person, and it was, it was really beautiful. And the other was for a 23-year-old father with a four-month-old baby. And it was just sobering, but in a good way, you know, not in the morbid sense, but in a good way of, man, there's no guarantee. Like, we, I could live another 50 years, come on medicine and that plant-based diet, or I could die on my way home. I don't know. There's no guarantee. Life is fleeting. But while I was walking through the forest, and when you're in nature, you just get in, tr- in, in touch with how fleeting life is and the seasons, and it's not artificial, right? It's just there. And I was, t- I was struck again by just the goodness of my life before God, which is really easy to forget, in particular if you read the news a lot. Right? Because it's, it's about all that is wrong with the world, not all that is right. As Sonny back here said to me recently, the news, you have to, I have to tell my kids, the news is about what's not normal. So there's not a news article like, 300 million people woke up this morning alive. We don't read that story, you know what I mean? Or this many people recovered from COVID and are doing great. We don't read that story. We just read the bad, what is not normative. And so you have to retrain your brain to an accurate vision of reality. It isn't based on some Silicon Valley algorithm designed to stoke your fear, your rage, and manipulate you, but it's actually based on what your life actually is before God. Full of pain, full of suffering, and for most of us, full of goodness. Not pain or goodness, pain and goodness. That's our life this side of resurrection. And I was, I was struck by just the goodness of my life. It was a beautiful spring day. And I felt prompted by the Spirit to revisit a practice that used to be like literally built into my rule of life. I would do it on a regular basis where I would just go for a period of time, a day or a few days or a week or every summer on summer vacation for three weeks straight. And I would just not read the news at all. 
is similar to other practices of abstinence, such as Sabbath, where we abstain from work, or silence, where we abstain from noise, or fasting, where we abstain from food. There are disciplines of abstinence or practices of abstinence that, if we did it all the time, would not be good. For example, with fasting, we would die. Um, but in periods, they are not only good and healthy and life-giving, they are mandatory for the survival of your soul. And so I felt prompted to kind of pick up that practice again. And that was, I think, Wednesday. So I've not read the news since. I have no idea what's happened. Last I checked, it was not going well out there (laughs) at all. There's a few glimmers of hope, but not a lot, right? I have no idea what's happened. Don't worry. I will read the news again, I promise. But I feel so at peace. I'm just struck by the reorientation of my body to reality. That yes, there's pain, there's suffering, there's evil, there's injustice, but this is all temporary. The kingdom of God is forever. And eternal life doesn't start then, it starts right here and right now. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know you. It's not just quantity of life, it's quality of life in relationship with God the Father. But I have no idea what will happen in our city or in our country in the months and years to come? Will the political holy war go on or will it calm down? Are we about to relive the Roaring Twenties or the Weimar Republic of the 1930s? Will China take over the world or just addict us all to TikTok? I don't know what will happen in the next chapter of the story, but I know the telos. I know the end of the story, where it's all heading, that Jesus is back from the dead and he is king over all. He's at the right hand of the Father. He is supervising all of human history, challenges, setbacks, rebellion, and counterinsurgency, and the like. Like a master chess player, you can move against him, you can counter move against him, but at the end of the time, it's only a matter of delay. It's only a delay tactic. At some point, he will beat you. At some point, Jesus will bring about his desired end of a soul and a society in harmony with God, with each other, and the earth itself. And I know that one day, as Sally Lloyd-Jones put it so beautifully, all the sad things will come untrue. And that, my friends, is good news.